Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Hi, I'm Alyssa Milano, and this is Sorry Not Sorry. Fred Guttenberg is my friend. He's also the first person we've asked back on the podcast for a second episode. When his daughter Jamie was murdered in Parkland, his life exploded. But rather than run from it, Fred spent every second of every day fighting to make sure it never happened again. His new book, Find the Helpers, What 9-11 in Parkland Taught Me About Recovery, Purpose, and Hope, is available to pre-order and will be released in September. Always look for the helpers. There will always be helpers. Looks like six, seven floors were taken out. And there's more. Oh, there's right Listen, hold on just a moment. We've got an explosion inside. Driscoll was the 200th member of the FDNY to die of a 9-11 related illness. And the department lost 343 men on the day of the attack. We begin our program with broken hearts in yet another American town, which today became the site of yet another deadly school shooting. A high school in Parkland, Florida, became the scene of chaos and panic. Hey, this is Fred Guttenberg, and I'm here to talk with my good friend, Alyssa Milano, about my upcoming book, Find the Helpers. It is my story of the amazing people who stepped into my life, both after my brother died from cancer related to 9-11 and after my daughter was murdered in Parkland, Florida. I intend to make it my mission to elect Joe Biden our next president. Sorry, not sorry. Hi, my friend, Fred. I love you so much. Can you start, please, by reminding listeners of your story briefly? Tell us about who you were before Jamie was murdered and who you've become after. So before Jamie was murdered, I honestly was just nothing more than your very typical dad of two kids, two teenage kids. As a husband, I lived a suburban lifestyle. We'll hear a lot about suburbia this week, but that's the lifestyle I lived in a community that was known to be super safe and secure. 
I also was a brother and a son. And my family was going through the loss of my one year younger brother, Michael, from cancer related to his service in 9-11. He died in October of 2017. I want to thank Mr. Collins and Mr. Naylor for putting this together. But uh, as I sit here today, I can't help but think what an incredible metaphor this room is for the entire process that getting health care and benefits for 9-11 first responders has come to. Behind me, a filled room of 9-11 first responders. And in front of me, a nearly empty Congress. So when my life took a turn on February 14, 2018, it was only four months after my family was going through the loss of my brother. And as a family, we had never been through anything like that before. This kind of significant loss. We were fortunate. We just all were managing to live our lives. And my brother's loss was the first. My parents have outlived their son. And that should have been the worst thing that happened to my family. Right. It should have been the most overwhelming thing my family ever experienced. Except four months later, my daughter was murdered because I sent her to school. I sent two children to school on February 14th to learn, to be safe, to laugh, to be excited about coming home on Valentine's Day for the plan that I had set for my family. And it didn't work out that way. A shooter came into the school that day. My son, Jesse, thank God I still get to be with. But Jamie, I visited in a cemetery. And it changed my life as only this kind of thing can. Parents aren't supposed to outlive children. Grandparents shouldn't outlive grandchildren. And when the world stopped spinning for me, and I really understood the gravity of what happened, I went into this whole new life. I don't have the same life I had before. And my life actually became dependent, not upon me, but upon the amazing people who I got to surround myself with who became a part of my life or who were already a part of my life. And I went on a mission and we're going to succeed. We're going to change the politics in this country and we're going to pass gun safety after November 3rd. Every time I hear you tell the story, I feel like there is something a little bit more grounded in the way in which you tell your story. And I'm wondering if it is because you had this time to write this book and really reflect. You've got a book coming out called Find the Helpers. And before we get into that, I want to note the huge amount of praise this book is already getting. You have blurbs from members of Congress, actors, activists, people from across the social and political spectrum, and they are all raving about it. And I don't think in my life I've seen such hype about a book even before it is released. So what do you think it is? What do you think it is about Find the Helpers that makes it so universally loved? And also tell me about the process of writing it and if it was cathartic for you. Because I think we hear so often people that tell stories, and especially stories that are so close to your being, your heart, People always say, you know, it was cathartic and it was therapeutic for me to write this. Is that how you felt writing it? It's such a great question because this was not the case before Jamie was killed. But 
afterwards, writing became my therapy. It started on social media. You know, I became very prolific on Twitter. And I often say to people, Twitter became my voice. It was just my way of getting things out of me. And this book just simply took that to another level. Being able to sit down and think about all of the relationships, what they meant to me, about my daughter and what her loss means to me and others. And what my book really got me to think about is people in a very different way, because you hear the same things I hear. Ah, people suck. Politicians suck. Media sucks. And I'm writing my book, and I couldn't come to that conclusion in any of these instances. And my book got me to see how decent people are. And listen, there are going to be evil people who say evil things. I get that. But my book helped me to see the greatness in people, the decency in people. And it helped me to allow people into my life in a way that helped me heal. And so I think the reason why the book is registering with people is, listen, we all go through tough times. We all go through grief. And we also all go through these amazingly wonderful times. And in either case, it's really helpful to go through that with others. And so what I hope my book does is encourage people to always kind of know who they consider their helpers, whatever their moments are in life, but also to be cognizant of others and know who you can be a helper to, because that's the other part of this. And when I talked to people early on about wanting to write this book, a lot of people didn't want me to write it. And originally, the whole concept of helpers had nothing to do with it. It was just I needed to write my story. I needed the cathartic part. I needed to get this out of me. I did it without a publisher. I did it without a book agent. I just had this need to tell my story in my voice. And as it evolved, my story became clear to me that it was much more than what I lost. It was also about what I gained and just the amazing people that had carried me. Well, I would argue that part of the reason why this book is so loved is that you, Fred, are so loved. Don't get me wrong. It's an amazing, incredible book. But I think what makes it so great is that it contains so much of you. And you are just amazing. And I want to back that up here because I think most people in your position would write a straight biography. And your story is heartbreaking and compelling. And it was really part of a national touchstone moment. But instead, you wrote a book about other people and how those other people influenced your life and influenced your grieving process and influenced your evolution into purpose. And I think that that is really a brave and special thing to do. Is that what you initially set out to do? What made you take that path? Well, it isn't. It was just literally me setting out and writing an autobiographical story. It was me telling what happened. But within that story was all these people. They were all part of my story. What changed, and it took someone else who I consider a helper to help me to kind of tease this out. So here's the story. About seven, eight months ago, I tried to get my book published. I couldn't get it published. Publishers didn't want autobiographical. They especially didn't want another Parkland book. And they didn't want another gun violence book. And I was disappointed because I felt like my story was one that needed to be told. 
So I met with a wonderful guy who ended up becoming my book agent. His name is Howard June. And Howard said, you need to go back and redo this. I said, what do you mean? I don't want to redo this. I want to tell my story. He goes, no, your story is what it is, but there's more there. Just keep writing. There's more there. Your stories that you tell on this book about other people, to me, are so meaningful that you need to go further. And he kept pushing me. I give him a hard time about it now, about him continuing to push me. But he did. And it ended up where it's telling the same story, but it's digging deeper to the meanings that I developed with different people. I think it's so important to have those people in your life that continue to push you to be better, especially when you're doing something as creative as writing, right? Because often I feel like other people know your capacity even more so than you do. And especially when I would think when you're dealing with something like grief, where there is something so debilitating and can be so limiting. So have people in your life that are like, you know what? You need to keep going. I was drained and he knew it. But he also knew this book had the ability to have such far greater meaning to so many people. Think about what we're going through now in this country with Corona. Think about all the families who watch family members be sick alone or die alone or have to literally be buried alone and how painful that is. There is no greater time in this country to know we have helpers or that we can be helpers than right now. And so this book, I hope, opens people up to really thinking about their life that way. Listen, we're going through a time in our country where the guy at the top likes to push people apart. That's what he likes to do. And I hope my book does the opposite. I hope my book tells people we are in this together. We need to be together. And I hope my book gives people the ability to put aside some of that outside noise and focus on who my people are. So there is a line in your book that totally fucking broke me. I mean, there's so many amazing, beautiful, even poetic moments in this book. But when you write, grief is love with no place to go, it killed me. And it is such a broad statement, but I think anyone that has experienced that kind of pain of loss can understand. But for those that don't, will you explain yeah. what grief is love with no place to go? You may have heard me talk about this before, Alyssa. There was a time in this process, you know, early on after Jamie was killed, I always used to say my daughter was. My daughter was Jamie. And I struggled with that sentence because I was looking at my daughter as in the past tense, but my feelings for her weren't in the past tense. And I couldn't reconcile this disconnect that I was having. And then one day it hit me. My daughter is Jamie. I love her today the way I did February 14th before I heard this news. And I am still a father of two. 
And so the problem is my relationship with my daughter has changed because I don't get to do things with her in person. Before I let you go, the orange ribbon on your lapel. Yeah, this is uh, uh, Jamie Gutenberg uh, was uh, a kid who was uh, killed uh, in Parkland uh, and her dad, uh, Fred Gutenberg, uh, is working on gun issues. Um, and I'm telling you, I wear this when I, when I go to those award shows, I, I always I recognized um, in her, I recognized my daughter, who is also a dancer, and I recognized one of those really interesting creative kids. Uh, and when you go to the Emmys, there are all these people who have the opportunity to be there in front of the camera, behind the camera. Um, uh, and I just want people to remember that some people have lost that opportunity and that we need to do something to stop uh, this, this carnage in our schools. I don't visit her in places like visit her in a cemetery. I don't get to take new photos of her. I have to look at old photos. I never got to do a sweet 16 for her. The last birthday I got to do with her was when she was 14. I don't get to teach her to drive, but I'll talk to people about how I don't get to do that. But all the things that I experienced with my daughter in life, but that I also know I'm going to miss, don't change the fact that I love my daughter and I'm missing these things. And so that's what grief is. You don't stop loving the person. You don't love them less. The way I think of it is I have a different relationship with her now, but she's with me every second of every day. If you think of love as a verb, like an actionable emotion, grief is love with no place to go, to me means all of those moments that you identify as love as a verb you have no way to direct the action. And that's why this book is resonating with so many people, is that the place for love to go while you were writing, your love for Jamie in the actionable sense, is this book. It's this book, and it's this unrelenting mission that I'm on to make sure I do everything I can to stop there from being future Jamie's, future parents who have to talk about this stuff or live it. You know, I used to always say to my kids, always do what's right, not what's easy. Even if kind of not doing what's right would be easier, down the road, if you always do what's right, you'll always be able to look back and be glad you did. And Jamie embodied that in the way she lived her life. But the thing about Jamie, she was tough as nails. For Jamie, what was right was sticking up for others who couldn't stick up for themselves. My little kid did that as a regular way of living. And for me, what's right is sticking up for others right now because I don't want them to feel this. I don't want them to know this. And this is how I show my love for Jamie. To me, I always say as a parent, we spend our life reacting to what happens to our children. That's what we do. That's how we show our love to our children, by reacting to them. This is how I'm reacting to my child and what happened to her. After Jamie was murdered, you heard from Joe Biden. And will you tell us about that conversation? So completely unexpected. It was probably about 10 days after I got a phone call. And I was getting a lot of phone calls from weird phone numbers, so I didn't answer them. There was a voicemail, so I listened to it, and it's Vice President Joe Biden. Florida. 
When my daughter was murdered in Parkland, Joe Biden called to share in our family's grief. I quickly learned about his decency and his civility, but I also learned about his toughness and how he's beaten the NRA. Together with the other victims of gun violence and our nation's youth, Joe Biden and Kamala Harris will take on the NRA again and win. Let's win back our freedom to live without fear. Florida cast 57 votes for Bernie Sanders and 192 votes for our next president, Joe Biden. He said to me, he goes, I know you probably don't recognize this number, so I understand you didn't pick up. He goes, I am going to call you back at such and such a time. So make sure you pick up. (laughs) This is what he's telling me. And he did. Called me back. He was on the train from Virginia to New York for an event for the Bill Biden Foundation. Spent about 45 minutes on the phone with him. Talking to him, he wanted to know all about Jamie. He wanted to know about me. He wanted to know about my son. And he wanted to know about my wife. He wanted to know who we were and what we were about. And at some point, he started talking to me about his story, which you know we're all familiar with, but about how he got through this moment that I was going through at that time. What I tell people is that uh, um, it's going to take a long time, but the person you lost is still with you, still part of you. And uh, I, I, when it happened to me, when I got a phone call when I was in Washington after I was elected before I got sworn in that my poor, they put a first responder on the phone, God love her, and said, you got to come home. It's been an accident. What happened? Attracted suit. I said, they're dead. Your wife and daughter are dead and your sons. And I remember thinking to myself, my God. Well, I mean, I didn't, I just remember being so angry angry with everything. I shouldn't say it, but angry with God, just angry. But the people who in fact have been through it, you know they understand. And it gives you solace that they made it. They just, you just want to know, can I make it through? It was the first time he used the phrase with me, mission and purpose, that that's what carried him. He talked to me about how the things that are bringing tears to my eyes now will eventually bring a smile, a picture, for example. But what he also did was he talked to me about what my mission is going to look like. Because I told him, I said, you're preaching to me in a way that I need to hear right now because I know I want to break the fucking gun lobby. And he goes, well, you have a lot of people who are going to want to help you with that. He goes, I've defeated them once. He goes, I'll always be here to listen to you. But he goes, that's a worthy mission. So we talked a little bit about that. And then he had to get off after about 40 something minutes. A mutual acquaintance of ours called me literally, I think, an hour after the call and said, I heard you spoke to Biden. He wants you to know he's going to be in Florida in a few weeks at a fundraiser for Bo Biden's foundation, and he'd like you to come and to bring someone else. And I brought another Parkland parent with me. We thought we were going to go do a handshake, you know, but just meet him in person. It would be quick. He had 200-something people waiting for him. And this is what I want people to know about Joe Biden and what makes him so unique. He took us into a private room and, again, met with us for about 45 minutes. Not a quick two-minute thing. About 20 minutes into that conversation, I said to him, I said, you have like 200 people out there waiting for you. I said, don't you need to go? He goes, this is more important. That's just who he is. And those connections mean more to him than anything else. Can I tell you something else about it? Because what he said 
towards the end of that is honestly something no one else has ever prepared me for. And I think really does get to who he is because he had someone that was with him in the room with us. And he told that person to leave because he wanted to talk to us really privately, which blew me away. And he wanted to talk to us about our families and our wives. He wanted us to understand what grief looks like in families and amongst couples. And he says, I'm going to tell you something now, and I don't want you to think this is going to happen to you. But he goes, 92% of all marriages fail after an event like this. He goes, I'm telling you this so that you're the 8%, so that you have a plan, so that you understand why. Because the problem is nobody prepares anybody. He goes, but I want you to be prepared. And he said, no two people grieve the same way. He goes, you need to know that. So allow each other the ability to grieve the way you need, but find every opportunity possible to support one another along the way. Nobody got me to even think about this until he did. He's a great guy. Did you ever hear from Donald Trump? No, not once. Well, he heard from you, didn't he? <laughs> I think the last time we talked on the podcast, you were about to go to the State of the Union address. Tell us what happened there, Fred. So I was at the State of the Union as a guest of Nancy Pelosi. At last week's State of the Union address, President Trump made a pledge to continue his support for gun rights, which sparked this moment. In reaffirming our heritage as a free nation, we must remember that America has always been a frontier nation. Now we must embrace the next frontier. America. That was Fred Gutenberg. He is a gun reform activist whose daughter Jamie was killed in the Parkland school shooting two years ago this week. And he was escorted out of the president's speech for shouting. Donald Trump did his thing early on talking about illegals and the wall. And if we do something about the illegals, we'll get rid of crime in America. I mean, the same old nonsense that we all heard him say. And I wanted to scream out then. And the crazy thing is, and this is maybe the part that isn't as well known, sitting behind me were Kim Guilfoyle, Don Jr.'s girlfriend, Brad Pascal, at the time Donald Trump's campaign manager, and Rona McDaniel the RNC chairwoman. Now, I don't know why they were there because I thought this was Nancy Pelosi's section, but they were behind me. And then every time Trump says something like, they're hooting and hollering. Okay, no big deal. Well, later on in the speech, Donald Trump got to the part where he said, and I will defend your second amendment, which is under attack from all over the country, which is a load of shit. It is not. And I watched all those Republican lemmings just jump up out of their seat like a bunch of trained animals cheering and hooting and hollering. And I jumped out of my seat and I said, I think eight or nine words. What about victims of gun violence like my daughter? That was it. Only thing I said. And before you know it, Secret Service was down in my row. The great humanitarian, the man who should have gotten the Medal of Freedom that night, Jose Andres, was sitting behind me and he was pointing to Rona McDaniel and Brad DePrescale and Kim Guilfoyle, like, what about them? What about them? But I was getting pulled out. I was thinking, okay, they're going to ask me to leave. No big deal. But they didn't. I got out the door, and they put me in cuffs immediately. They put you in handcuffs? I was in handcuffs. Oh, yeah. I got detained. I don't know if it's arresting, because I was never read my Miranda rights, but I was detained. So they put me in cuffs. They were being nice. 
It took all my personal belongings. But here's the thing, Alyssa, I didn't have my phone with me. I couldn't even call my wife. And what you need to know is what a triggering thing that is for my family, because the day Jamie died, we couldn't reach Jamie. So I couldn't call her. My phone was in Speaker Pelosi's office because I was there as her guest. Long story short, they end up taking me in this metal box vehicle, handcuffed. There were no windows. I thought I was going to be at the bottom of the Potomac. I end up at a detention facility with one arm chained to a wall. They're telling Holy me, shit. Oh, yeah. They're telling me I'm going to be arrested, but I'll be released at some point later that night. I said, do I need to call an attorney? They said, no. And still nobody ever read me my Miranda rights. And then all of a sudden, about 30 minutes later, they show up, they undo the handcuff, and they're like, you're free to go. I'm like, what? They're like, a change in decision. I walk out, Speaker Pelosi got involved. And when I walked out, members of her staff were there waiting to take me back to my hotel. I mean, that's just a crazy story. Did that affect you psychologically? That was the worst. That was a horrible night. Number one, I was very upset at what happened. I felt like I embarrassed Speaker Pelosi. So I'm in this car going back to my hotel. And what happens? Now Speaker Pelosi calls through the Bluetooth on the car to talk to me. And I'm thinking, oh, my God. And I said, I'm so sorry. I didn't mean to do that. She goes, what are you apologizing for? She goes, you spoke for America tonight. Thank you for using your voice. And then she proceeded to tell me how she tore up the speech because I wasn't there for that part. So you talk about helpers in this lowest moment, in this worst moment, there she was making me feel better. That night was horrible. I went to sleep feeling terrible. My family was justifiably upset with me. And I woke up the next morning and people are talking about gun safety because of what happened that night. Yep. And they wouldn't have been otherwise. And I felt thankful. And all of a sudden, all that sadness and really just how upset I was, all of a sudden I spent that next day thinking, people are really good. People want to do something about this. And the fact that my crazy outburst has people talking about gun safety at a moment they wouldn't have otherwise, I can live with having been in handcuffs. Well, you mentioned that your family was upset with you. And I think you are such a unique case because for many reasons, but really you've had deeply personal tragedies exist as two giant national tragedies. That's really something. And I'm wondering, do you totally lose your space to grieve in private? No, it's something you have to work at. You have to make time to do it, almost like self-care? There are times my wife has to say to me, get off social media, put it away, be done. You need time for you. You need to stop today. And she's not wrong when she does that. But I've been thinking a lot about, in a weird way, the question you just asked. Because I've been on such a crazy run since right after Jamie died that I'm not really sure... I have grieved the way I should be. And I think when I finally stand with a president, Biden, who is signing this into law, this version of me that everybody's gotten used to see that holds it together is going to turn into a pile of mush. And that's when I'm going to go disappear for a while and take care of me.
even knowing you through this time, there really is a more groundedness about the way you're able to articulate what you're feeling that is so beautiful to see and probably indicative of that that healing has already begun. But all the conversations that we've had behind your back, Fred, (laughs) have consisted of like, this is the most amazing man ever. And we are just so terrified that he is not acknowledging what has happened to him. I don't know if there's a right way to grieve. And I know that everybody does it differently. But I do know that you lost people not only close together and not only very publicly, but also really traumatically. Like this is trauma. Both of these instances are trauma, right? And the fact that you have been through that kind of trauma. I mean, have you done any trauma counseling? I have. I can't tell you I've done a lot. Is it helpful? For me, writing has always been the most helpful thing. So here's the way I felt about it. I'm very public and open talking about everything that I'm feeling. I don't really hold a whole lot back. And so when I was going through the trauma counseling, I felt like I was being brought into a place of talking about things that I'm already talking about. So I'm not sure that for me, I was getting the most out of it. But here's the flip side of that. I can't tell you that I was ready. So I talk all the time in a very unemotional way because I want to be able to express my thoughts. And I think going through the trauma counseling, I'm kind of in this mission mode, putting my emotions back a little bit. I'm not sure I was getting everything out of it. I probably at some point will revisit it. But writing for me helps. And I get that part of you and not everyone has that fight in them and that clarity to sit down and actually write. Have you ever read the book, The Body Keeps the Score? No. It's basically about how our bodies hold on to trauma in different places and that manifests itself in different ways. Like for me, it's anxiety. For some, it's a bad back. For others, it's a neck that they can't move. And so often when we talk about healing and psychological healing, we're talking about it from a brain aspect, right? From a mind aspect and everything that that entails. But it's usually very centered through your head and your mind and your brain. But this book, and I think it would be interesting for you because you've waited now so long to dive into this, but it's all about how healing has to come from the ground up. And it's interesting when you think about the possibility of what your body holds on to in its life and how there are many examples of even Native Americans or tribal communities dancing around a fire after a long, long, hard day of hunting to just get it out, to get it out of their bodies. Or when you look at a kid and they just start skipping when they're like moody or in a weird spot or grumpy. And maybe you want to read that book and see if there's anything. Yeah, Bradley Cooper just actually bought the rights to it to turn it into a movie, which I'm not sure how he'll do. But it's a really interesting and it's called that kind of psychology is called somatic experiencing. And of all of the trauma therapy I've been through in my life for my own trauma, somatic experiencing is the thing that I think has helped me the most that and Xanax. Um, Okay, so (laughs) 
In the book, you talk about how we met and our experience at the NRA convention in Dallas. Can you share a little bit about that experience and that day with our listeners? Well, I can. And I talk about more than that, Alyssa, because I also talk about how your example has affected me. And I talk about how you became such an advocate and how fierce you are and how that's impacted me. You know, early on, you came into my life after Jamie was killed. You became a really early example of advocacy and toughness and fight. And so I thank you because it means more to me than you'll ever know. But yeah, Dallas. So as you know, Jamie was killed in February 2018. And you and I were in Dallas in April of 2018, just a couple of months later, for the NRA convention. And you and your group, Nora, ended up getting a park across the street. I mean, close to where this convention was going on. And we rented out the park. And we were going to have our own little rally to talk about gun safety. And I was there and you were there and some other really just amazing people in this movement. And some of the folks from InfoWars, they all showed up in their bizarre costumes and with their bullhorns. And some other folks from the NRA showed up and they walked up to where we had our stage set up and they started harassing you. And they started giving you a hard time about your involvement in this and the fact that you have security and we had security that carries weapons. And you were very peacefully and nicely trying to explain to them your issue is not with legal lawful gun owners. Your issue is not with gun owners. It's with lack of laws that allow anybody to become a gun owner. And you were doing it in such a civil way. And later that afternoon, they started having all these social media posts about how you brought all these gun-toting people there and you're a hypocrite. And, and I'm just thankful that we were there to tell the truth. What I also remember about that afternoon are a couple of other moments. Like when I was speaking and they were using their bullhorns to try and drown me out. And all the people who were there to watch us were trying to hoot and holler back at them. And I told everyone that was there for us, I said, don't. Let them continue making fools of themselves. I said, when red flag laws come to Texas, they're all going to lose their guns. And everyone started to laugh. And before you, they all walked away until the very end, when some of the younger people that were there volunteering with our group started to get surrounded and accosted by these AR-15 gun-wielding guys. And these were kids, kids who lived in Parkland that were there. And they were being surrounded by these guys with AR-15s. What the fuck? Why? What the fuck? It is hard to get out of bed some mornings knowing that there are people like that in the world. But there are. Evil does exist. And that's the thing, you know, as much as I love people and I wrote a book about how amazing people are, there are evil people out there. And we need to be aware of them and we need to be prepared to defeat them. And with helpers, we will. I think I want to end on a hopeful note. What gives you hope? November 3rd. November 3rd. Enough said. We're going to elect a new president. We're going to flip the Senate. I think so, too. I think we're going to do both. I think people are good. 
I think people see what's happening. I think people can feel a collective pain. And I just want to thank you for all your tireless, tireless work, even at the expense of your own health. And for my listeners, find the helpers. What 9-11 and Parkland taught me about recovery, purpose, and hope is available to order now wherever books are sold. I love you, Fred. Thank you. I love you back. You know, my mother used to say a long time ago, whenever there would be any really catastrophe that was on the, in the movies or, or on the air, she would say, always look for the helpers. There, were, there will always be helpers, you know, even just on the sidelines. That's why I think that if news programs could make a conscious effort of showing rescue teams, of, of showing who, medical people, anybody who is coming into a place where there's a tragedy, to be, to be sure that they include that. Because if you look for the helpers, you'll know that there's hope. I love Fred. I love so much that in the middle of what the last two and a half years of his life brought him, the grief and the pain and the unbearable sadness, he wrote a book about gratitude. Imagine that. Imagine being able to find gratitude when your child has been murdered. Storytelling is our most powerful weapon when we're fighting injustice. Fred shared his story, and the other side melts in the face of that power. The stories on our side of the issues are human stories. They're stories like Fred's, like Kristen Urquiza, whose father died from COVID and who made such a powerful statement at the DNC. They're stories like yours. We have stories about why America needs to be better, and we have stories about the great people who fight to make it that way. Fred's book tells the stories of many of those people, of the helpers, of those of us who look out for one another, who see the value in the person, not their wallets. As long as we take care of one another, the other side will never win. So please, tell your stories. Share your power. Save the world. Sorry Not Sorry is executive produced by Alyssa Milano. That's me. Our associate producer is Ben Jackson. Editing and engineering by Natasha Jacobs. And music by Josh Cook, Alicia Eagle, and Milo Bugliari. That's my boy. Please subscribe on Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like the show, please rate, review, and spread the word. Sorry.